It's the show Agent Orange slash Adolf Twitler would love to shut down. So here's the story, folks. I am the least black person that you've ever seen in your entire life. In fact, we did very well relative to racist people. It's the no bullshit zone. It's called fake news. It's the Shaggy Jenkins Show. I know who you are. Just wait. On the Pacifica Radio Network. It's the Shaggy Jenkins Show all the way from the little city of Pukalani uh, live. Hey, how's it going? It is our weekend review, and boy, do I have a lot of stuff for you, including, well, basically a lot of stuff that you probably need to know going into the weekend that you should think about before the midterms. Before we get to all of that, welcome to my show. I am a critical thinker, problem solver, guy just left of normal insane, and always centered in common sense. My name, Shaggy Jenkins. You can find me at my website, shaggyjenkins.com, or wherever fine social media is trolled. Just look for me at Shaggy Live. Diving into our big stories of the week. First off, I'd like to apologize for the fact that there's no correspondence this week, but they all got like a bunch of cool stuff. Uh, Chris is off at WVON. Um, Ron is off writing a movie. Uh, Friday Love and Sir Cat are off like doing cool stuff in California right ahead of the election with some marijuana growers. And me, I'm left to do the week in review by myself. Well, well. Uh, since we are talking about some of the biggest stories of the week, we have to start off with the border. This is a story that ever since Donald Trump started his candidacy, refuses to go away. His obsession that all bad things come from the southern border of the U.S. And it seems that because of his obsession with this and from what seems like his base's obsession with this, right ahead of the midterms, Donald Trump has went ahead and sent even more troops to the southern border. Now, it probably goes without saying that border security is something a little bit more complex than what we've been told, okay? Let's, let's go through some very simple facts. First off, in the aftermath of 9-11, George W. Bush sought to do the exact same thing that Donald Trump did, which was secure our nation's borders. And as such, he ramped up recruiting policies, or should I say recruitment ramped up recruitment and kind of lowered the policies for said recruitment to get a lot of border agents. Now, there was a problem with that. The border agents that were coming in kind of didn't understand the whole nature of the job. And as such, in the aftermath of 9-11's ramp up of our border security, we actually learned a very valuable, valuable lesson. Uh, that valuable lesson was... <gasps> Border security is more about diplomacy with refugees than it ever was about security. You heard that right. A lot of the people that come through the southern border of the United States are actually fleeing conflicts that, well, let's just be honest, we kind of dabbled and had a hand in creating. But as these refugees arrive to the mainland, the, the first thing that they usually encounter is a border guard. And versus what you probably have been romanticized to think those encounters look like, it's a lot of times border guards rushing out to make sure that they're hydrated, that they have some sort of blanket and covering, uh, and why they're coming into the country. It ends up being a lot more diplomatic. Oh, and by the way, did I mention that they don't know English, so you have to be bilingual for these encounters to happen? Well, these encounters, though, 
more often than not, are all about poor, huddled masses, just like it says on the Statue of Liberty, seeking refugee status within the United States from some pretty bad Southern American conflicts. So when Donald Trump, in his escalation of this whole, we have to secure the borders and send a bunch of troops down there, he's kind of using a hammer for a screwdriver's job. Or in this case, a hammer for a, a calculator's job. Because with these refugees that are trying to make their way northward from all kinds of terrible conflicts in the South, uh, the thing that's going to become more and more prevalent in these encounters between United States border security and refugees is uh, sadness and fleeing and hope for safety. Not so much terroristic and, and nefarious things and M13 and all of these bad things that Donald Trump says are in this caravan. Now keep in mind, Donald Trump does know that the midterm elections are just around the corner, and his base has been this week waxing and waning in their support, mainly over a couple of the initiatives that he took in the White House, not exactly having the payoff that they, they thought they were going to have. Uh, we start with one of the bigger stories this week where Donald Trump is really, really hoping that ramping up all of this border security and border hoopla will distract people from the fact that his trade war has been unsuccessful. Let me repeat that. The trade war with China and Canada... Though they have resulted in some positives, that's the one thing. If Donald Trump was really smart, he would kind of harp on the positive things that have come out of this trade war in spite of the fact that there's so many bad things going on with it. He could say that much like the ACA and, and President Barack Obama's plan to get everybody health care, it's a work in progress and, and, and just... Hold the faith a little longer. He could be smart and do that, but it's Donald Trump, and we know how that's going to go. It's not. Well, here's the thing. If he was smart and he did go out and say, look, this is kind of a work in progress because the trade war did, in fact, get China to kind of open up a little bit of their markets to some stuff that hasn't been opened before. And it kind of led to a pivotal role of China helping us out by putting pressure on North Korea and bringing them to the table for denuclearization. That's something that Donald Trump could absolutely harp on and say, these are a good th uh, consequence of my weird actions. Now, he could also say that, uh, thanks to his kind of strong-arming and, and bullying of the whole NAFTA, uh, NAFTA coalition, that he has opened up the dairy markets of Canada and well, got a little bit more competitive with the steel between the United States and Canada. These are all things that he could harp on, but that would require somebody, one, to ignore all of the negative things that come out of that. And as a matter of fact, we went through a bunch of those negative stories where we covered what's going on in the Rust Belt. It seems that Donald Trump and his trade war with China is actually having dire consequences for 
farmers in the United States, the one group that Trump said, I will do my adamant best to make great again, make farming great again. You remember the green and yellow hats that he put out? John Deere wasn't too happy about that. But trademark infringements aside, Donald Trump has been on this whole tear that trade wars are easy, they're going to pay off for us, and just stick around a little longer and you'll see Donnie's got this handled. But the more time goes on, the more farmers are starting to feel the pinch, and as such, it started to make the Republican Party feel the electoral pinch. See, right now, it does kind of look iffy going into the midterm elections of how things are going to shake out. On one side of the political aisle, people are predicting a very massive backlash to the Donald Trump agenda, and that will result in an onslaught of Democratic votes. In other words, the Democrats will probably take control of the House, maybe even lessen the majority, so much so in the Senate, that they can play ball there. But there is a whole other side of the spectrum that says, look, because the Democrats, now follow me here, because this is all kinds of stuff dealing with uh, the latest, uh, I guess you could say, ruminations. Because Donald Trump lives in ruminations and hyperbole. Well, on the ruminations and hyperbole side of this argument, Donald Trump is dare I say, basically going, hey, look, I'm going to win because everybody knows the Democrats are behind the migrant caravan. The Democrats are behind the bombing scare. The Democrats are behind all of this deep state conspiracy with Robert Mueller, the Russian investigation, fixing the election, and people will see it and come out in droves to vote for the Republican ticket. Now, that is the two sides that are basically going into the midterms, and both of them are clamoring very loud for your attention. However, what do we really know about how the vote is going? It turns out that, yeah, there is a little bit of a political backlash. Not only are we covering the story this week of how the Rust Belt is feeling the squeeze from the trade war, but also about how Republicans and the GOP have been very, very, very concerned about independent women. No, I'm not making a joke there. It seems that women that are unparty affiliated uh, helped kind of carry specifically white suburban women that were non-party affiliated. It seemed that they were uh, pivotal in a lot of the blue areas that Donald Trump ended up carrying in the 2016 election. And as such, Republicans are hoping that these very same independent female voters will come out again and ensure their control of the House, the Senate, and making sure that Donald Trump's agenda goes forward. But in poll after poll after poll, a lot of these independent, non-party affiliated white suburban women are finding themselves at a little bit of a crossroads with the GOP agenda. Okay, now on one hand, why did white female voters go for Donald Trump? It's simple. Oh, they were doing it for the kids. Oh, it was all about the kids. You know how that tired line goes. We're doing it for the kids. Well, that's a lot of the reasoning behind the white female vote that helped catapult Donald Trump into victories in areas 
uh, Republicans normally haven't enjoyed victorious kind of results from. They were voting for the future for their kids and jobs and other things. But here's the problem with that. It turns out that all of these trade wars and stuff that not only are affecting the farmers in the Rust Belts across the United States, not only that are affecting several big industries, steel, manufacturing, and such, it's also affecting job outlook. Now, I could go into a whole brief explanation of how jobs actually in the manufacturing and distribution fields disappeared in the past due two decades in the United States. But even a brief explanation of that would take a uh, an entire show. So how about a super quick one-liner? Manufacturing jobs disappeared thanks to technology. Automation actually took the place of a lot of manual labor jobs, and as such, no matter how much manufacturing is done here in the United States, there's not exactly a direct link for that manufacturing increase to actually increase in significant numbers employment. Now, of course, I know what you're thinking, but Shaggy, somebody will have to run security at this robot factory. Somebody will have to tune up those machines. Yes. But on the scale of United States manufacturing that Donald Trump has been promising his base that he would bring back, there is no longer a world that exists that that type of manufacturing is needed. Most of the stuff that that people want to bring back can actually be handled by robots and drones and automated services. No need of humans required. Just an outlet. And maybe uh, every so often an upgrade for your computers. But that's about it. But Donald Trump has been harping over and over and over again when it comes to white suburban female women, I am the jobs president. I am the one that's going to bring back employment to the United States. I will make sure that your kids have a bright future. And though it worked in 2016, it doesn't seem to be working now. But this week, the GOP released under uh, a nationwide kind of shotgun blast a commercial of an undecided female voter who just so happens to be a white suburban lady. And as she is going through her day of trying to decide who she wants to vote for, in the background, in yard signs, in radio broadcast, in overheard and over-the-shoulder shot television segments, Time and time again, she's being filled with this Republican political rhetoric propaganda saying that jobs are up and confidence is up and this is great for the kids and the future. And of course, there's a shot of her as she's driving her kid to the school, looking in the rearview mirror, contemplating what her child's future will be like. Because that's what Republicans really want to do when it comes to the white female voter. They want them to think... Look, no matter how much of our rights we're taking away from you now, reproductive rights, protections at the job, as far as income, as far as protection from sexual harassment, uh, protections from, let's just be honest, the judicial system not completely sweeping your case under the rug should you be the victim of sexual assault. Women are looking at those issues and saying, you know what? 
screw the kids because I don't want my daughters getting raped all the time and it being okay in your brave new job-centric future. And that's where the Republicans are having a problem with these white female voters. On one hand, they're wanting them to stick to their guns and vote on the Republican ticket again because jobs and kids and future and security and, and we keep out the bad guys who are... Let's just be honest, all brown. That's what all this propaganda is for. And they're hoping that these white suburban middle class ladies will buy it hook, line and sinker and then go out and vote Republican. But you got to also kind of look at recent events going into the midterms. The Republicans kind of had a, a, a male machismo moment where, look, it's actually come out after the fact that this was not about putting the best judicially qualified candidate on the Supreme Court. It was about shutting up all of the Republican and liberal detractors of Donald Trump and the GOP. Of course, I'm talking about Brett Kavanaugh. Now, there's a couple of interesting stories in the aftermath of that. One, there's still a little bit of fire and fury and people pissed off about his nomination and confirmation to the Supreme Court. There's also news that uh, a second accuser, the accuser out of California, has actually went forth with the Department of Justice to register some formal complaints against Kavanaugh. However, here's the thing. When it comes to the political backlash of this, female voters saw the GOP. This white, older male-controlled GOP put forth a candidate that was, at best, slimy. At best, a little bit creepy, okay? I'm not saying that the guy is rapey at all. I'm just saying that if you're having a party, chances are he's the dude making the shadows a little darker in the corner. And his eyes seem to be locked on you no matter how many times you glance back at him. But this creep factor of Kavanaugh is something that is turning off the white, independent, female suburban voter. Because they kind of registered that this wasn't about putting a qualified judicial candidate up there. It was about, at the end of the day, proving that these guys could get away with anything. In other words, the white male patriarchy is still in control. Ha 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 ha. Look at the size of our uh, authority. I forgot for a second that we're on an FCC radio station. You get the picture, though. Independent female voters saw that kind of action and kind of reaction that people like Orrin Hatch, although not running for re-election, Paul Ryan, although not running for re-election, and others, time and time again, they saw their reactions as, as a smack in the face for the party that was supposed to be of family values and protecting women and children. Remember, that's the whole mystique that the Republican Party has built up on, that they, they do everything that they do, like Brian Adams said, everything they do, ladies, they do it for you. But time and time again, their initiatives and agendas have actually kind of worked against the American woman. And now, in a big kind of tizzy here, Republicans are worried, where are the women at? 
And that could lead to another little component of what we could see happen next week when the midterms come out. Now, of course, I'll be covering the midterms live, so that means that for just a little bit, this show will probably have to uh, pre-record some stuff. And I'm sorry, I know you want minute-by-minute coverage of the election, but we have a very vital election going on here where this show is based in Maui, and I I plan on being just in the thick of it that day. But as long as we're talking about nationwide election results, there does seem to be a trend towards the blue in the midterms. Now, I brought up this week, and even uh, Ron Pertee, when we were talking with him, our Midwest correspondent, brought up this week that midterms are always kind of a referendum on the president's agenda thus far. It's kind of like saying, hey, guy, you're doing a good job, and they vote more people of your party in, or at least keep the, uh, the incumbents in their seats, or they're like, screw this, you have completely messed things up, and we are reversing course. Now, this has happened time and time and time again. You remember the big red wave of the 1990s that kind of unseated the early Clinton de- Democratic controlling years? Uh, You remember the big blue wave that came and kind of knocked off the steam from George W. Bush's whole Republican agenda. And the reason why is because time and time again, voters kind of used the midterms to give a check of whether or not a president or an administration is doing a good job. And it looks like when we're going into this election that a lot of people are not really feeling the benefits of things that they were said to get benefits of. Uh, Take, for instance, those tax cuts that Donald Trump and the Republicans are kind of using in all of their ads. We've given record tax cuts to the United States. Well, not only does those female independent voters that we've been talking about know better, but also people that are typically on the Republican ticket, they all had kind of noticed that the tax cut wasn't that beneficial to their personal bottom lines. And for a party that was built up on securing and resurrecting and growing the middle class of the United States, the middle class instead found that the upper class got all the breaks and they got all the squeezes. Remember, now there's a lot less securities for workers in the United States and it's gotten even weirder because not only has this week kind of resulted in Donald Trump doing everything in his power to secure votes by distracting and changing the arguments that we're talking about, but we've seen in poll after poll after poll that people really, by and large, aren't going to buy it. Where does that actually leave us for the midterm elections? Well, in a lot of deep red states, there are some, dare I say, contentious battles going on. And some incumbents, including people like even Ted Cruz, are sweating profusely underneath their white lily collars. Because it does look like uh, things are kind of swaying the other way in places they haven't before. Now, this doesn't seem to have the Republican Party, by and large, worried because 
if they show any concern right now, if they show any weakness, they feel that it's going to do nothing but undermine their position of power. Yeah. In other words, if even somebody like Ted Cruz came out and said, look, man, I'm really behind in the polls. Y'all need to help me by voting. That would be seen as weakness from a party that does not like weakness. I hate to say it, but the Republican Party has kind of become a little bit like a gang. You're beat into it. You're beat around all the time inside of it. Donald Trump and his Twitter account and, well, your fellow fellow statesmen and women who also kind of bash your approach should it approach anything like liking human rights or common decency. And then, if you decide that the agenda isn't going your way. And here's the thing, because not only is the Rust Belt pressure kind of affecting Republicans uh, who are seeking re-election, not only is the pressure from the trade wars and their devastating results, the tax cuts not really having their intended results, not only are all of these factors loss of confidence from white suburban female independent voters, not only are all these factors playing into the Republicans potentially losing control of the House, but there is one more thing. It has to do with how they treat women within their own organization. Now, you'll notice famously that when it came to the confirmation of Kavanaugh that we mentioned earlier, uh, Lisa Murkowski out of Alaska just kind of gave a present vote so that he could be confirmed, uh, you know, like a proxy vote for another congressman, uh, whether than voting yes. And of course, Susan Collins, who always disappoints people, went between the yes, no, yes, no, maybe like the Malcolm X. I mean, not the Malcolm X, but the Malcolm in, in the middle theme song. Yes, no, maybe. She don't know. But then she eventually votes. Yes. Uh, Susan Collins, of course, all of these women within the GOP have faced a tremendous amount of backlash from their older, wider, paler male compatriots. And as such, that's led to a lot of women going, do I really want to be a part of the party that just eats its own young as well as destroys any women of any principle within their own ranks? Will this result in a big blue wave? I'm not saying it could. I'm just saying you should see the writing on the wall right now. Speaking of that writing, we'll take a quick break and come back with more of it as the Weekend Review continues. It's the Shaggy Jenkins Show. You are listening to 60 Second Civics, the daily podcast of the Center for Civic Education. I'm Mark Gage. America's middle colonies included today's states of Delaware, New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. The middle colonies differed in important ways from the New England colonies. First, they had a more culturally diverse and cosmopolitan population who often lived close to each other in the large cities of Philadelphia and New York. European settlers included Scots-Irish, Danes, English Quakers, Portuguese, French, Germans, Welsh, and Italians, among others. 
However, even in Quaker Pennsylvania, African Americans were held in slavery. Although a gradual abolition act was passed in Pennsylvania in 1780, slaves were held there until roughly 1850. The Native Americans of the region, from the Iroquois and other tribes, traded with the colonists, but conflict and war were commonplace. The middle colonies were more tolerant of diverse religious groups than the New England colonies, with Quakers, Lutherans, Presbyterians, and other religious groups living side by side. Finally, the middle colonies had an economy that was very different from that of New England. The middle colonies supported large, abundant farms that could provide enough surplus to support robust regional trade. In contrast, New England tended to have smaller farms that provided only enough food for the family, with little left over for trade. That's all for today's podcast, 60 Second Civics, where civic education only takes a minute. There's a lot at stake this November. Thirty-six governorships. Thirty-five Senate seats. And all 435 House seats are up for election. If only 50% of voters show up, it would be the highest midterm turnout in a century. Learn more and get involved at IamAVoter.com. And don't forget to vote Tuesday, November 6th. Brought to you by I Am A Voter and the Ad Council. Warning, too much consumption of the Shaggy Jenkins Show could result in a higher IQ, a better understanding of the world, and not being called a f***ing idiot as much. It's the Shaggy Jenkins Show. It's the Shaggy Jenkins Show, live from the little shack in the tiny, tiny town of Pukalani, Hawaii. Aloha and welcome back. Hey, if you'd like to support the show, look us up on Patreon. Seriously, we have some great membership benefits. Just go to Patreon and look for The Shaggy Jenkins Show. Or go to our website where you can find links to all of that at shaggyjenkins.com and follow me on social media, wherever that is served, at Shaggy Live. Okay, midterm elections are coming up, and I would be remiss if I did not mention this one story of how, okay, look, let's be honest, when it comes to candidates, most of the time, the unwavering support of their wife and their kids and stuff, that's the, that's the thing that gives you, the voter, the warm and fuzzies, right? To see a candidate, no matter which side of the ticket that he's, he's on, surrounded by, you know, his kids, his wife, maybe a puppy dog or something like that. These are kind of things that endear this candidate to the cockles of your heart. Well, one guy isn't really that endearing to his own kids. Okay, look, there's a Republican right now looking for a Missouri House seat. His name is Steve West, and his own children have basically came out and said, please don't vote for our homophobic and racist father. Not exactly endearing language, is it? But look, when it comes to Emily, you know, she's Stephen West's daughter. She says, quote, I can't imagine him being in any level of government. He's made multiple comments that are racist and homophobic and how he doesn't like the Jews. Now, if that sounds a lot like a white supremacist... That's because it, 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 it is. Look, Steve West in the past has had ties to a lot of nefarious things. And, and when it comes to his son, he even calls his father a fanatic, saying he must be stopped. His ideology is pure hatred. 
Now, this all comes from a big NBC interview that went down in a 30-minute phone call. But Steve West kind of had a, a little bit of a rebuttal saying, I'm not anti-Semitic. I have no racism at all. And I am not a homophobic. Um, that's, that's grammatically incorrect. You're supposed to say, I am not a homophobe or I am not homophobic. If you can't say it, chances are you're that thing. Okay, but look, Steve West is just one of the people that is kind of across the country seemingly more empowered this week in, let's just go ahead and be honest, a week that has shown us that despite Donald Trump saying that he is very pro-Israel, very pro-Jewish, that people under the Republican ticket are going more along the lines of traditional white supremacy where the Jews are the enemies of the state. Now, if that doesn't go ahead and tell you that he's got just a little bit of a warped view, uh, not too long ago he had a radio show. And here's the thing, on that radio show he kind of made some outrageous claims, not only about Jewish people and their involvement in deep state conspiracies, he also had a little huh, wonky view of what it comes to be gay. Now, this is the thing. When it comes to homosexuality, he actually said that homosexuality is a terrible, terrible, sinful behavior and that it goes, quote, hand in hand with behaviors like pedophilia. Now, he also recounted stories of heterosexuals that were threatened and bullied by homosexuals, so much so that they couldn't go about living their normal little straight lives. But this is the thing. None of those stories actually shook out. And several times when he was confronted about stories like this one, where he said, quote, The homosexual world, they are by much greater percent predators, especially when it comes to boys. Quotes like that, Steve West is thrown out there time and time and time again, and when asked for a backup of some sort of validation of that information, he just says, well, go talk to uh, Milo Yiannopoulos, that conservative gay guy who was fired from Brett Bart after, uh, you know, he basically said that I wouldn't be gay unless some older man didn't molest me. Yeah. And basically that molestation in the gay community was a good thing to help young boys discover their own sexuality. That is the only evidence a guy whose outrageous claims were, let's just face it, not based in any sort of realm of reality that you and I know. That is the proof that Steve West needs for his claims that homosexuality is predatory, that it goes hand in hand with pedophilia, and that people that engage in homosexual lifestyles are nothing but lowly criminals just ripe for the picking, as far as, you know, arrest, prosecution, and maybe even death sentences. The thing is, is that when you're a candidate, having your own kids come out and basically say, Hell no, he shouldn't go because he's racist, he's homophobic, he's backwards. And, and, and in the words of his son, Andy, a hateful ideology that must be stopped. When your own children come out like that, where do you go from there? 
Well, Steve West uh, has been on the attack front, hoping that he can get ahead of these comments and convince people that this is just the meanderings of two bitter children that, that are just a little scorned because Daddy didn't love them enough. And now they're just saying whatever is possible to derail the greatness that is his campaign. It's not really working with his constituents, however. Republicans being a party of family values look very lovingly when it comes to children and their comments about their parents. And when it comes to these two children, their comments have weight. Now, I, look, I know that if you're on the left side and the liberal side of the ticket, you're probably looking at this week of news stories in review like, oh my God, it's the end of the world as we know it. R.E.M. was right. <laughs> and you would be wrong. Because time and time again, we've seen signs that there is kind of hope for common sense to, to, to win out, including this story that we didn't get to cover this week in the week of review. Now, this is a very interesting case because people like Stephen Wright are banking that they can get into the White House based on the crystal clear, pristine reputation of Donald J. Trump. Well, Donald J. Trump has one big problem, and it happens to be named Robert S. Mueller and the Russian uh, Trump investigation. Now, this has been going on for some time, and of course, uh, there's also escalations out there talking about how, look, even the 2018 elections right now are susceptible to a lot of cyber attack and electronic uh, oh, electioneering. You know, kind of the same way that these mass disinformation campaigns ramped up before the 2016 election, so too are they ramping up now. And despite all of this stuff going on, this week we have a very interesting story about Robert Mueller that doesn't involve that investigation at all. Instead, it kind of involves a little bit of a conspiracy. Now, this week... Headlines came out that Robert Mueller had approached the intelligence community, the FBI, and the Department of Justice saying, hey, I have uncovered through two phone calls from two different individuals a conspiracy from a right-winger, I don't want to call him a kook, but a political activist that is trying to bribe women that have worked with me in the past into alleging sexual misconduct. Now, what has basically come out of this is that men alleging to work for a GOP lobbyist by the name of Jack Berkman and a company called Surefire Intelligence, which is an intelligence firm with kind of, uh, let's just call them shady roots, all right? They're tied to firebrand uh, Jacob Wall, who is a, a right-wing conspiracy theorist. Now, Jacob Wall offered women five-figure payments to accuse Robert Mueller of sexual misconduct and to sign a sworn affidavit to that effect. But after the media reported on Berkman and Shorefire Intelligence plan on Tuesday, the website Gateway Pundit published a document from Shorefire Intelligence that... that kind of lays out details of an allegation against Mueller by a woman who claimed the special counsel sexually assaulted her at the St. Regis Hotel way back in 2010. Problem. 
there is no actual evidence or any sort of merit to those allegations. And here's the thing. As critical as it is that Mueller and his team go forth unimpeded, doing a little backhanded things like this, like Wall and Berkman have tried, could actually have devastating backfiring effects. Because now, instead of coming forward and and derailing the scandalous investigation by having another scandal behind the investigator, they have kind of thrown gasoline on the fire for the hole the president is trying to obstruct. And if the president isn't directly trying to obstruct agents of his agenda and agents of his political side are trying to obstruct Mueller and his investigation, as well as kind of lean things towards their favor in the elections. Now, this is the thing. Berkman told the Daily Beast that he was going to prove that Mueller, Robert Mueller, conservative Republican, is a drunk and a sexual abuser. But you'll know from his time as head of the FBI that Mueller had one of those ironclad reputations of being very straight-laced, very buttoned-down, very, dare I say, on it. So, with these allegations coming forward, could they hold any water? No, not really at all. And here's the thing. It could lead to even more kind of pressure on other people in this investigation. Now, look, Wall and Berkman have firmly ensconced themselves on the we are the GOP conservative conspiratorial kind of side. They, they, they've already put themselves there. But there also becomes uh, of interest a guy by the name, he's self-proclaimed as a conspiracy, conspiracy theorist, Jerome Corsi who this week had returned to Washington, D.C. for more meetings with Robert Mueller's investigations, and even on Friday is scheduled to make a second appearance before a federal grand jury probing the Russian interference. Now, this is the thing. Even when people like ABC, the AP, and everybody reached out to David Gray, who's the attorney for Corsi, they're not put forth kind of any comment. But there could be a very interesting reason that Corsi has been called in front of investigators. See, for the longest time, it's not just been an investigation into Donald Trump. And that's why people like Wall and Berkman are trying to derail Robert Mueller. Because not only is Donald Trump under those crosshairs, but people like political activist and longtime Trump supporter Roger Stone they're finding themselves in the crosshairs. And not too many weeks ago, Roger Stone was in the news because uh, he basically said that he had direct contact with WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange and knew in advance of the release of Democratic emails that would be harmful to Hillary Clinton's campaign in the 2016 election. Now, these kind of allegations could be on the part of Roger Stone, who is known to do these things, just mere hyperbole and exaggeration. It could just be that. 
It could be even more, though. See, here's the thing. When it comes to Roger Stone, he's one of these guys that has, over the years, kind of nurtured relationships with people like Russian agents and foreign representatives, all in the interest of his own kind of political agenda. And nobody really knows at this point what's going on with Mueller's need to want to talk to anybody surrounding Roger Stone, but brace yourself, kiddies, that could all about to be forthcoming because, see, for the longest time, Mueller has been kind of under this I am going after Roger Stone speculation. Now, They've never came out and said that they're specifically targeting Stone, but this is the man that, since the mid-1990s, has been trying to woo the American public into accepting somebody like Donald Trump, and as well as, uh, you know, kind of woo Donald Trump over to the side of wanting to run. And in 2016, all the stars aligned, and guess what happened? Bada-bing, bada-boom, we have a Donald Trump presidency. So even though it's not known and, and what kind of air that, that, that Mueller and his team are looking into Roger Stone, it is just kind of suspicious that they are looking into him more closely. And one of the guys that has been close to Roger Stone and has been kind of a source of information about all things Roger Stone has been Jerome Corsay, and he will be back testifying this week. Now, with all of this stuff going on, you would think that the Republicans would kind of have things buttoned down this week and have their game plan at least as far as denying, distracting, and, let's just be honest, delegitimizing all of the things against them ahead of the midterms. And you would probably be wrong because this week it's also come out that Donald Trump at least Donald Trump's sycophants seem to think that the true criminals in the escalation of violence, you'll remember, we've had pipe bombs mailed out to Trump's uh, kind of political adversaries. We've had a synagogue that was shot up. We had two men killed outside of a Kroger. We've had an escalation of hate crimes. And in my home state of North Carolina, we had a political rally where guys came out in Confederate flags and swastikas and gave Heil Hitler salutes when they talked about about Donald Trump. With all of this stuff going on, Donald Trump and in this week a very surprising candid interview from none other than Kellyanne Conway seems to think that the real trouble in the United States isn't so much the deathly rhetoric coming from the president's mouth, the fiery kind of get my enemies, uh, one, well actually 240 characters on Twitter. No, it's late night television. Now, in a moment that has had Americans kind of scratching their heads very heartily, thickly, uh, Donald Trump's sycophant extraordinaire, Kellyanne Conway, took to Fox and Friends and said, Look, when it comes to who's to blame for the escalation of violence in the United States, specifically violence against people in the synagogue in Philadelphia, the Tree of Life synagogue, 11 people were killed, three more were injured, and one of the victims was somebody that actually had survived the Holocaust only to get killed by a neo-Nazi white supremacist in the United States, the country that fought the original Nazis. That is not irony. That is what happened. God help us all.
But when it comes to all of this, Donald Trump has basically said, at least through the mouthpiece of Kellyanne Conway, that what it really is about is, one, the fake news media coming out against him consistently, but two, late-night comedians that are always besmirching Donald Trump and besmirching religiosity. That's the word they use, religiosity in the United States. And now, Kellyanne Conway, in, in what is definitely one of those, oh boy, she doesn't understand what the merits of being in a political office, nor protocols, procedures, or rules, uh, Kellyanne Conway has basically came out and said, oh, instead of turning off all of this religious talk that kind of stokes these <clears throat> super conservative white supremacist, uh, we should actually go more, more, and more into our faith because faith is what made America great. That may be true, but remember, the faithful of the people that Donald Trump has riled up is actually closer to people that think that anybody that's brown shouldn't be down on planet Earth. If you know what I'm saying, they believe that they're only white as right. And in this week, and especially over the course of the last couple of weeks, we've seen an escalation of white supremacy in the United States. But that's all on the comedian's fault. That's all because late-night comedy makes fun of Donald Trump. That's all because late-night comedy makes fun of religious and good moral family values that all of these terrible Social deviant behaviors are now coming to light. That is the only reason. And even Mike Pence said, look, when it comes to talking about Donald Trump's rhetoric, Donald Trump is absolutely in no way connected to any sort of escalation of violence. And I see that, and I don't think the American people can connect those dots either. Mike Pence, once again, speaking for the American people, said that, yes, I don't think the American people, by and large, tie the president's rhetoric to an escalation in violence. However, not necessarily the truth. That's the thing. When we talk about truthful statements from Donald Trump, okay, he's issued a couple of big whammies. Remember in the aftermath of the synagogue shooting, shooting he held a political rally and said, at that rally, I was thinking about not coming here tonight, but because the markets opened up immediately after September 11th, I too am going to hold a rally because we can't let the terrorists win. Now, the thing is, is he didn't really call them terrorists, and he, he, he really lied about that whole 9-11 thing. If you look back in your history books, 9-11 caused Wall Street to close for several days before activity resumed. It didn't open up the very next day as he used in his claim to hold his rally in Indiana in the aftermath of the Philadelphia shooting. And speaking of that Philadelphia shooting, a story that has basically galvanized the nation uh, uh, into, look, we have to have a moment of addressing these white supremacists. We have to come together and kind of talk about what's going on. In that moment, Donald Trump actually managed to make the story all about him again. Now, despite the mayor of Philadelphia, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, the mayor of Pittsburgh begging him, begging him, please do not come here. Protesters signing on, uh, you know, petitions on change.org, please, pre Mr. President, don't come to Pittsburgh. 
Donald Trump showed up in Pittsburgh days after the shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue and made no public statements, visited a couple of officers in the hospital, laid a couple of flowers down at the scene of the shooting, and basically did a a touch-and-go visit without releasing any political itinerary, telling any of the uh, high-ranking GOP members of the House and Senate that he was taking the trip so that they could get some political capital out of it. No. No, once again, Donald Trump took a story that was inherently not about him and injected himself into it and tried to make it all about him. Look at how we're mourning. But here's the thing. His mourning for the Philadelphia um, victims, I'm sorry, for the Pittsburgh victims. I keep saying Philadelphia, I think because I'm getting hungry and cheesesteaks are on the menu today. But uh, back to Pittsburgh. Uh, Pittsburgh, home of the Steelers, <laughs> and the team, you get the point. Look, Pittsburgh basically didn't want Donald Trump to come there because they knew that he would kind of parade around and make this into something that was about, look how great I, the president, am. And that's exactly what he did. Going there, not bringing anybody with him, not giving anybody a chance to come along, and just kind of doing his own thing with First Lady Melania, Donald Trump was uh, able to go and say, look, I cared so much I didn't want to make a political fiasco out of this, but now that I'm back, I'm going to make a political fiasco out of the fact that I didn't want to make a political fiasco out of my visit. And he's going to try to get as much capital out of that as possible. Problem being... People in Pittsburgh kind of have already done the math and have figured out that Donald Trump, at least his rhetoric, was partly to blame behind this wild shooting. uh, Well, it's not a wild shooting, but this wild conspiracy behind the shooter, Robert Bauer. Uh, Here's the thing. He believes that Jews under the direction and financing of George Soros were helping to pay terrorist M-13 and other nefarious people in the migrant caravan coming north from the south, all in an effort to detract away from Donald Trump and the Republicans' greatness, as well as enter the country illegally and vote in as many different places as possible. This was a conspiracy theory that was put out on social media site Gab. And here's the thing. Gab even came forward and just kind of shut things down in the aftermath of this because they were like, oh my God, I can't believe something so stupid was allowed to spread. But because Robert believed that kind of conspiracy theory, a theory that was spearheaded by none other than our president empowering people not too long ago by saying he was a nationalist. Think of the timeline. Going into the midterms elections, we had a president come out and say that he was a nationalist, and two days later, two days, that's all it took, we started seeing a pattern of violence and escalation against minorities and political um, adversaries of the White House. The pipe bombs started going out on Wednesday against CNN, against Barack Obama, against Hillary Clinton. The conspiracy theories took off on the internet almost immediately after that. The president says he's a nationalist, and all of a sudden, we have guys shooting up synagogues because, hey, I'm a nationalist too, and that means that the Jews must be financing all of these migrant caravans coming forward to take away the greatness that is America. 
And that's where we are with we with the whole week in review. Not a real pleasant story that we painted, and honestly, kind of a scary one. Now, here's the real scary thing. A couple of states across the United States are having some very vital elections next week. These midterm elections could determine not only the reach and power of Donald Trump and his crazy agenda, but also the reach and power of some very crazy left agendas as well. It's always important to stay centered in common sense like we open up this show with. So, look, common sense dictates that no matter which side of the political aisle you're on, you need to vote. Because, look, if anything in the 2016 elections, we learned a very valuable lesson. It was the lack of people voting, not the people that voted on the agendas that they voted in. It was a lack of people voting that have actually led to the administration that we have now. So if you don't like the way things are going, vote. If you do like the way things are going, I know I don't like the way things are going, but if you do, vote. Because no matter what, at the end of the day, this week has taught us a very valuable lesson. People don't want that to happen, and we should make sure that it does. Until the next time, love you, mean it. Get in, bye.